You are now listening to the January 2nd broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Story of Kings, a sermon, and Divine Intervention. First, let's begin with Story of Kings. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian Winston with Story of Kings. During the next few weeks, we will share the story of Jehu, the 10th king of Israel. We get his stories from 2 Kings chapters 9 and 10. The name Jehu has already come up several times in the past few weeks because his stories are intertwined with those of two other kings, King Joram of Israel and King Ahaziah, of Judah. Some of the listeners may recall that God used Jehu to render judgment against those two evil kings, Joram and Ahaziah. Let us now turn to 2 Kings chapter 9 to learn about how he was first anointed to become a king. The process through which God chose Jehu as his instrument began with prophet Elisha calling on one of his disciples and giving him a job to do. Elisha instructed him to gird up his loins, take a flask of oil, and hurry over to Ramoth-Gilead. When he gets there, he should look for Jehu. Once he finds Jehu, he should pour oil on his head and tell him that God has anointed him king over Israel. At the time, Jehu was in Ramoth-Gilead as the commander of an Israel army. They were at war with Aram, and Jehu was guarding Ramoth-Gilead against the Aramean army. While the servant of Elisha was traveling there looking for Jehu, Joram, king of Israel, was in fact wounded in a battle at a different place further south. To tend to his wounds, he was in the process of retreating to Jezreel, another city in Israel. When the servant of Elisha arrived at Ramoth-Gilead, he ran into a group of the army captains sitting together. He found Jehu, their commander, and told him that he had a message for him. The two of them then went into the house. There the servant of Elisha carried out the task he was instructed to do. Here is what is said in 2 Kings 9, verses 6-10. to He arose and went into the house, And he poured the oil on his head and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I have anointed you king over the people of the Lord, even over Israel. You shall strike the house of Ahab, your master, that I may avenge the blood of my servants the prophets and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab every male person, both bond and free, in Israel. I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah. The dogs shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel, and none shall bury her. Then he opened the door and fled. 
Some of the listeners may wonder why Elisha did not go to Jehu himself and sent his servant in his place. That was to keep this anointing of Jehu under wraps, lest King Joram might learn about it and try to interfere with God's plan. Elisha's servant relayed God's word to Jehu that God was going to enthrone him as the king of Israel and use him to judge the house of Ahab. Then the servant Elisha opened the door and ran off. When Jehu came out, one of the other captains probed him about what happened, if everything was all right, and what the message was. Of course, Jehu initially was tight-lipped and deflected the question. He was concerned the whole thing about a prophet coming to him and anointing him might have been staged by the other captains and considered the possibility of a conspiracy to make him their king. But his captains persisted, and they said that they did not know anything and asked Jehu to tell them what the servant of the prophet had told him. Finally realizing they had nothing to do with the prophet's visit, Jehu told them that God anointed him and he would become the king of Israel. Upon hearing that, the captains hurried to pay him homage. They took their garments and spread them under him on the bare steps as a makeshift throne. They then blew the trumpet and accepted Jehu as the king. In order to make the rebellion a success, it was important to maintain the element of surprise before descending on Joram to take his life. So to make sure no one leaves the area, Jehu and his captains closed down the city of Ramoth-Gilead. Once the city was sealed off completely, Jehu rode in a chariot and rushed to Jezreel, where Joram was staying. The watchman was standing on the tower in Jezreel, and he saw the company of Jehu and reported it to Joram. Joram rode out to meet Jehu to find out why he came to Jezreel. Once he realized that Jehu was there not for peace but to kill him, he turned his chariot around and started to flee. Jehu drew his bow and let his arrow fly. He was right on target. His arrow pierced Joram through his heart. Joram sank in his chariot and his body got tossed out on the field that used to belong to Naboth the Jezreelite. This was the property Joram's father, King Ahab, unjustly took possession of. After Joram was killed, Ahaziah, king of Judah, that had come to Jezreel to see Joram, was also killed while trying to flee. Jehu became king of Israel after killing Joram and Ahaziah. He had yet one unfinished business. He needed to take care of the wicked queen Jezebel, Joram's mother. We have mentioned on several occasions that Jezebel was considered the most wicked and evil woman in the Bible. She caused three kings of Israel to worship idols, first her husband Ahab, and then her first son Ahaziah, and lastly her second son Joram. She counseled them to commit crimes in the most sinister way. She caused the whole country to worship idols and contaminated their souls. 
God had already spoken in 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 10, that when he judged Ahab's house, dogs would eat Jezebel's body and there would be no one to bury her. The accounts of Jezebel's death as carried out by Jehu are recorded in detail in 2 Kings chapter 9, verses 30 through 37. When Jehu left for Jezreel, Jezebel heard about it. She put on the makeup and waited for him by the window. As Jehu entered the gate, she chided him. Is it well, Zimri, your master's murderer? The reason Jezebel used the name Zimri to call Jehu was to remind him how Zimri became king after killing Ella, but only to get killed himself in a few days' time. People simply did not accept Zimri as their king. Instead, the Israelites enthroned Omri as king, and in turn, Omri led the army and destroyed Zimri's palace. Zimri took his own life after seeing how his palace was no more. That was merely the seventh day of his reign. Jezebel was insinuating that the same fate would befall Jehu. Maybe Jezebel wanted to scare Jehu, or maybe she was trying to suggest that to prevent such a fate, he should submit to her. Regardless, Jehu would hear none of it. He lifted his face and saw a few officials standing next to Jezebel. He confronted them by calling out who was on his side. Then he proceeded to command them to throw her out of the window. At that, they threw her out of the window and Jezebel died. Once dead, her body was trampled beyond recognition. Jehu ordered his servants to collect her dead body to give it a proper burial since she was a king's daughter. However, by the time the servants got to the scene, they could only find her skull and a few bone pieces. Then Jehu realized that God's word was fulfilled, that dogs would eat Jezebel's flesh in the land of Jezreel. Now, with the wicked woman Jezebel gone, would peace finally descend on Israel? Would Jehu become a good king for the people of Israel. How would he walk with God? We'll learn more as we continue with the story of Kings next time. Have a blessed week. takes to climb out of this boat under the crashing waves to step out of my comfort zone into the realm of the unknown where Jesus is and he's holding out his hand but the waves are calling out my name and they laugh at me reminding me of all the time I tried before and failed the waves they keep on telling me time and time again, boy, you'll never win. You'll never win. 
But the voice of truth Tell me a different story The voice of truth Says do not be afraid And the voice of truth Said this is for my glory Out of all the voices calling out to me I will choose to listen and believe The voice of truth Kind of strength it takes to stand before a giant We're just a sling and a stone Surrounded by the sound of a thousand warriors Shaking in their armor Wishing they'd have had the strength to stand But the giant's calling out my name and he laughs at me Reminding me of all the times I've tried before and failed the giant keeps on telling me Time and time again, boy You'll never win You'll never win But the voice of truth Tell me a different story The voice of truth Says do not be afraid And the voice of truth Said this is for my glory Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is how do you hold on to faith amidst trials in this world? I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. So we're going to read the first 12 verses of 1 Peter chapter 1. We are five verses into this challenge to memorize 1 Peter 1. So some of you may be able to recite those first five verses and then maybe just read the rest of them. So I'll put it up here on the screen, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. This is the word of God. Let's start, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, 
to those who were exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. In this you rejoice, verse 6 says, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. I want to start today with a confession. So here's the confession. Faith is a struggle for me. So I don't know if that sentence surprises you discourages you, encourages you, confuses you, disappoints you. After all, I'm a pastor. I've lived with faith in Jesus for close to 40 years in my life. But earlier this week, in my time alone with God, I want to confess before you a struggle to believe. So here's the question I want to Ask today for all of us, for anybody who struggles with faith, like how do you hold on to faith amidst trials in this world? That seems like a really important question to answer for all of us. Whether you're struggling in faith now in some way or you find yourself struggling in the future. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Elijah, giant hero of the faith in the Bible, who got to the point where he didn't even want to live anymore. And we said none of us is beyond getting to that point. None of us. So how do you hold on when you get to that point? And any other moment or day when you find yourself struggling with faith. So in order to show you God's answer to this question in my own heart, this question for all of us In his word, I want to start by defining a couple of terms based on the passage we just read. So the first word we need to define is faith. So we see it three times in the verses we just read. So at the end of verse 5, we saw uh, 
By God's power, you're being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Then at the, get to verse seven, it says the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in all these things. And then verse nine talks about the outcome of your faith. So three times, and when you see this word in this passage, it's not just a generic word for any kind of faith in anything. In this passage, faith equals, so if you're taking notes, faith equals continuing hope and trust in God. Continuing hope, living hope, so not just hope at some point in the past, but an ongoing hope and trust in God, in Jesus. You believe in him, this passage says. You trust in him to save your soul. That's what we saw there. You believe in him, you trust in him to save your soul. Which, so side note, for those of you who are not yet Christians listening right now, the salvation of your soul is talking about the day when you I and every single person in the world will stand before God to give an account for our lives on this earth. All of us will stand before God one day. We will stand there as sinners, as people who have turned from God's ways to our own ways, and we will all deserve judgment before God for our sin. All of us, from the best of us to the worst of us. The good news of the Bible is that God loves us and has sent Jesus to pay the price for our sins. Jesus died on the cross for our sins so that anyone who trusts in him will be saved from our sins. So I wanna urge you today, if you've not already, to put your hope and your trust in God and his grace toward you in Jesus. Trust in Jesus as you anticipate that day. And then for all of us to live with continuing hope and trust in God. So one more note on continuing here. We could go all over the Bible and talk about people whose faith failed at different points. And Peter, who's writing this book, is at the top of that list. Before Jesus went to the cross, cross, remember what he told Peter? Luke chapter 22, verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed that your faith may not fail, that your faith won't fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And that's exactly what Peter did right after this. He denied Jesus three times. So did his faith fail? Yes. In that moment, just like our faith in so many moments is prone to fail. Just like I described in my life earlier this week. But not ultimately, right? That's what Peter is after here when he's writing about continuing hope and trust in God. He's writing to Christians in the first century who are going through trials and he's encouraging them to hold on to faith Hold on to hope and trust in God in the middle of those trials, which leads to the second definition. Trials are temptations to lose faith. So Peter references trials at the end of verse six, and then twice after that, he uses the word testing. So go to verse six, trials, temptations to lose faith. He says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith 
though it is tested by fire. And I want you to see the way Peter describes these trials, these testings of our faith, these temptations to lose faith. He says they are varied. So you've been grieved by various trials. When you think about trials in your life, think about all the different temptations in your life to lose faith. It could be small, it could be a passing moment when you're tempted to sin. After all, the root of sin is a lack of faith, a lack of trust that God's way is best and right. So trials could be small things, could be small things that just pile up when you're tempted to lose faith in a moment, or they could be large, major things when you're tempted to lose faith altogether. And these trials, the Bible says, are often grievous, like they're hard, often painful, they're sorrowful. The Bible says they are temporary for a little while. So we're gonna come back to that in a minute. I'm gonna hit one other thing the Bible's saying about trials here. He said, the Bible's saying they're purposeful. Look at this phrase, if necessary. That's interesting, what does that mean? Trials, why, why would trials be necessary? And the answer, verse seven gives us is so that, so when you see so that, that's a purpose clause, there's a purpose in this trial, so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, I wanna spend, in a sense, the rest of our time unpacking what that means, but at this point, I just want you to see, and I'm gonna put this on the screen because it's so important maybe to write down, when you think about the purpose of trials, this passage is saying that God intends every type of trial to strengthen your faith. Every type of trial to strengthen your faith. When it's said in verse seven, they may result in praise and glory and honor. Just ask the question, like, is that a good thing? The answer is yes. That's a really good thing. Like an infinitely good thing. I'm gonna show you in just a second. There's nothing, no one better than that thing. And that is what God intends trials to lead to. That's the result of Trials for those who hope and trust in God. So God intends every type of trial, small, big, light, heavy, all of them to strengthen your faith. But, and I want you to see the contrast here, because God is not the only one who has an intent in our trials. We'll see this later in 1 Peter chapter 5, but the devil is on the prowl like a roaring lion seeking to devour and do you know what he wants to devour? He wants to devour your faith. And you need to know this. God intends every type of trial to strengthen your faith, and Satan intends every type of trial to destroy your faith. Every single day, Satan aims to destroy your faith. Every day. And when you walk through trials, temptations to lose your faith, he wants you to lose it. He wants me to think prayer doesn't matter. So back to our question then, how? How do you hold on to faith in the middle of trials in this world? Like practically, what do you do? And in order to show you the answer the Bible is giving us here, I want to put a picture in your mind. So I have another rope out here. I'm finding all kinds of uses for ropes and sermon illustrations. I've actually used this rope before, but I want you to picture this 
the small blue part of this rope as your life in this world, like from start to finish, from the moment you're born to the moment you die. And in the middle, there are all sorts of varied trials, some small, some big, some that last for a moment, some that last for months or years, maybe even decades. But they're all represented here in your, this time between your life and your death. So this is your life in this world. So the question we're asking today is, how do you hold on to faith here amidst the trials in this world? And the answer I want to show you in 1 Peter 1 and in the picture of this rope that I want to kind of use in some different ways is that you hold on to faith here by looking back, by looking forward, and by looking up. So follow this with me. Start by looking back in the middle of trials. How do you hold on to faith? You look back in three ways. First, look back at the God who called your name before the world even began. How do you hold on to faith in the middle of trial right here? You start by looking back at the God who called your name before the world even began. So we saw this last week, Christian. Your story didn't start here at your birth. It didn't start there at the beginning of this blue tape. Your story started a long time before this. So I'm going to start to walk this direction. And I want you to get a picture of this rope going all the way to the other side of this stage and going backstage and continuing backstage. Like, out the door, across the street, across the city, around the world, and around again, and again, and again, and around the universe, so just picture, it goes on forever. So whole picture that I want you to get, and this rope here is a picture of eternity past. So going on forever in this direction. And we saw last week that before the foundation of the world, verse 2, 1 Peter chapter 1, God foreknew you. Foreknew you before a star was ever even set in the sky, before earth was even created. God foreknew you, chose Saw it in verse 3, according to his great mercy, caused us to be born again to a living hope. God, from eternity past, set his affection on you, chose to love you, chose to save you from your sin, chose to adopt you into his family. So when you think about whatever point in your life where you were born again, where you put your trust, your hope in Jesus for the first time, whether that was years ago, whether that was days ago, maybe for some of you it might be today, whatever that point was, realize that's not where the story started. The story started millions of years before that. In eternity past, when God chose to love you, adopt you in his family. Even picture the, that, that picture of adoption, like right now there is a child on the other side of the world without a family or a home. He has no idea that there's a family in a home praying for him every single day, multiple times a day, who loves him and can't wait to shower him with love. And this is you before God. 
before you even knew him, before, before you even thought about him, when you were running from him, he was running after you. He was pursuing you before you were born, before the world was even formed. So when you're struggling to hold on to faith right here, just pause for a moment and remember that for eternity, God has loved you. So we're just getting started. Then look back at all the people in history who have given their lives serving you. You say, what does that mean? All the people in history on this rope who've given their lives up until now serving you. So I'll come back to this on the screen if you're writing it down in just a minute, but look at this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. The Bible says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit in Christ, of Christ in them was indicated when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them, follow this, that they were serving not themselves, but you. The things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Do you hear that? All the prophets in the Old Testament had a purpose, and it was not to serve themselves. Instead, their purpose was to serve you. They were giving their lives, prophesying, and enduring trials as they did to serve you and me. Let this soak in, Christian, right where you're sitting right now. All these prophets lived for your faith to help you hold fast in hard times. And not just the prophets, but those who preached the good news to you. See, all the people who've passed the gospel on, so now it's come to you. And at the head of them all, look back at the king who conquered sin and death for you. So I put a red part in the rope about here to remind us that our hope is not in some vague dream out there. Like our hope is in a real historical event, a real historical person who lived perfect life with no sin, who died on a cross to pay the price for sinners and then rose from the grave in victory over sin and death. We have hope in the middle of trials here because we have put our hope in the king who conquered the ultimate trial, death itself. This is what Peter's saying. Living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then this is what I love about verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy. How is that possible? How is it possible to love and believe and rejoice in somebody you haven't even seen face to face? Jesus. Here's how that's possible. Christian brother or sister, you and I have seen Jesus in far greater ways than if we had seen him face to face. One, remember, most of the people who saw him face to face rejected him. So don't think just automatically, automatically, yeah, if I was alive, I would have done this or that. 
And then two, very few people had an intimate, close-up look at Jesus. I mean, most of us, we maybe maybe we've seen him here or there, heard a sermon at this point or that point. But look at what we have instead. Like, we have it all. We see him at every moment in the Gospels, like calming the wind and the waves and healing this person and that person over here. Every single word he says, we see him in intimate moments with his disciples. We see him alone in the garden praying, Father, not my will, but yours be done. We see him dying on a cross. We see him rising from the dead. Not just that, we see him ascending into heaven. We see his spirit and all those he sends out. And by the way, we see in 39 books in the Old Testament over centuries, promise after promise after promise of who he is and how he would come to save us from our sins. We see him better than we could have in the first century for sure. And as we see him, we love him. And we believe in him and we rejoice in him even in trials. Why? Because we know that we've put our hope in a king who is alive. He's not dead. And we know that when we die, we will live because he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, those he, though he dies, he will live forever with me. And that's just one part, so now we look forward. Look back, look forward to two things. One, look forward to the inheritance that is guaranteed for you. So now let's take a tour on this side of the rope. So here's that point when you die, and then this rope starts going on forever and ever and ever in this direction. So just imagine, this rope goes on. We're a few million years in now, and it keeps going on and on and on and on forever in that direction. And what is the Bible saying about this? You've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. The Bible describes our inheritance, this part of the rope, as a kingdom, as a new heaven, a new earth. So think physical, like when you picture heaven, don't picture like we're just going to be floating around on clouds and some spirit world. Like that's not at all the way the Bible depicts heaven. A new heaven and a new earth, a kingdom where everything will be good. No more sorrow. No more sin, no more suffering, no more death, no more trial, no more temptation to lose faith. It's an inheritance that is imperishable, means it will last forever. This is your inheritance, it's coming. So here's the deal. On that day when we're talking about that and we look back to this day, what's going to matter? What one thing is going to matter here? Faith. Faith, that we hold on to faith, knowing there's a kingdom coming for you. And not just that, not just that. Look forward to the glory that will be given to you. To the glory that will be given to you. Did you hear this language? Back to this, well, started afresh here. Rejoice 
Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that, remember we talked about the purpose clause, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, follow this, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So there's some confusion and debate over, okay, who's getting the praise and the glory and the honor here? Is that for us or for God? I think the picture's clear. It's both. So the Bible is saying, follow this, that faith is like gold refined in fire. And when you and I go through trials, refining is happening. The Bible talks about this all over the place. Just a couple of examples. James 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, whenever you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith, the same language, produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So there's a purpose in this. It's producing something. Romans 5, 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in sufferings. How? Knowing that suffering produces endurance. It produces something. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. So the whole picture is when our faith is tested, our faith is being refined like gold. Like gold. And just like gold on the other side of the fire is more pure and more precious and more valuable so is faith on the other side of the fire. Faith that has said, God, even when my faith, or even when my health was failing, God, even when my job was gone, even when this person I loved so much was gone, even when everything was dark around me, like everything, even then, even more so then, I hoped and I trusted in you. And the Bible is saying that that kind of faith will be exalted by God in heaven. You will stand before God, brother or sister, on that day, and he will say, praise and glory and honor be to you. Here's my kingdom. Enjoy. And you will enjoy to his praise and glory and honor. You will be glorified. God will be glorified. Which all leads to the other place you look in the middle of trials. So Christian, you look back you look forward and you look up. So 1 Peter 1 says, look up at the angels who marvel at God's plan of salvation for you. Verse 12, these are things, I'm just going to add this in, Peter says, into which angels long to look. What does that mean? Remember, angels don't experience salvation like you and I do. Angels stand in awe as they watch sinners like you and me who deserve eternal suffering be saved from our sin and sustained by God in this sinful world. So 
look up at angels who peer over the precipice of heaven and watch God's work in your life with wonder. And look up at all the people in history who are cheering you on. So I'm just going to pull in these people from the past here because they're not off the scene right now. They're alive right now in heaven. Hebrews 12 says they are watching and cheering you and me on. Get the picture. In your suffering, in my suffering, in our trials, this host of men and women who've gone before us, all of them who experienced trials, all of them who experienced temptations to lose faith, all of them who held on to hope and trust in God, from Moses to Hannah to Elijah to my dad and Heather's mom and Betty Wright and Jake Castle. They're all in heaven shouting right now, hold on. Just hold on, hold on. It's worth it. It's worth it. He is worth it. God is worth your hope and your trust. Just hold on. Look up at the angels. Look at men and women who have gone before us. And ultimately, look up at the God who will guard and guide you all the way to the end. Verse 5 is the bedrock verse in this passage. There is an inheritance in heaven kept for you who by, see it, who by God's power are being guarded. Does that word mean? That word means protected. Like picture yourself on a dangerous journey, having a guard with you or guards around you to ensure you make it safe to the destination. So here you are. Here's where you're trying to get. The Bible says you have a guard to make sure you make it there. In other words, don't miss this picture. This is the ultimate point. On that day when you see his face and you receive your inheritance. And maybe you start to think, I held on. On that day, you will realize, wait, God was actually holding on to me. And that's the promise of 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. By His supernatural power, supernatural grace, supernatural strength, supernatural joy, God promises to hold on to you. So in the middle of trials, temptations to lose faith, small, big alike, brothers and sisters, look back, look forward, and look up to the God whose power promises to provide you everything you need. And in this, faith, continuing hope, and trust in Him. Will you pray? Will you bow your heads with me? Uh, 
just looking around this room and looking through that camera, and I know, I know there, there are some people who aren't ready for that day, aren't ready to stand before God on that day. Like if you do not have confidence when you think about standing before God, because you have put your hope and your trust in Jesus, I invite you right now just to pray to him, just to say, God, today I put my hope and my trust in you, today. I trust in what Jesus has done on cross for me and his resurrection for me and all that you've done for me. Forgive me of my sin. Restore me in a relationship with you. Give me new life. Cause me to be born again. Save my soul. Save me from my sin. When you pray that, God promises to answer that prayer. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Bring about faith like that, we pray right now. So many different people's hearts. Don't let us play a religious game or live going after the idols of this world. God, help us to trust in you. And God, I pray, I pray, just looking around this room, through that camera, so many people who are experiencing trials right now. And so many of us who, who don't know the trial that's coming around the corner where we're going to find ourselves rock bottom. God, I just I pray faith. I pray for continuing hope and trust in God. In every heart, in every life, now and in the days to come, guard your people like you promised by your power. for the salvation that will be revealed in the last time. We praise you for our inheritance. We praise you for the hope into which we have been saved. All glory be to your name, Jesus, for making this possible. We worship you. We praise you. And we say together today, our hope and our trust are in you. Though we have not seen you, we love you. We believe in you. We rejoice in you. And we sure look forward to the day when we will see you, when our faith will turn to sight in a whole new way, and we will experience the reward you have prepared for us. We pray all these things. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your word cause it to soak in more and more and more in our hearts, even as we contemplate what we've just heard. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, happy day that fixed my choice On thee, my Savior and my God well, may this growing heart rejoice and tell its raptures all abroad. Happy day, happy day, when Jesus washed my sins away. He taught me how to watch and pray and live rejoicing every day. Happy day, happy day, when Jesus washed my 
my sins away. Oh, happy bond that seals my vows to him who merits all my love. Let cheerful anthems fill this house while to that sacred shrine I move. Happy day, happy day, when Jesus washed my sins away. He taught me how to watch and pray, and live rejoicing every day. Happy day, happy day, when Jesus washed my sins away. When Jesus washed my sins away, my sins away. You are listening to Unity in Christ, the English hour in our broadcast program. Here at Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries, we strive to connect our listeners to engage with a community of believers as one body under Christ. Since 2000, we have dedicated our lives to make disciples of all nations through radio broadcasting. We are always encouraged to hear from you, so if you have any comments or testimonies that you would like to share, please feel free to email us at askhsgm at gmail.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Heart and Soul Podcast on iTunes for weekly sermons. To learn more, visit heartandsoul.org. The following program is called Divine Intervention. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm very excited to meet you through this program. My name is Terry, and from this program called Divine Intervention, together we will be meditating upon the people in the Bible for the next 13 weeks. I invite you to join me on this walk. I eagerly expect for God to pour His grace while we're together. In today's first session of Divine Intervention, the person we'll meet is Eli. Today's title is Eli Syndrome. Eli's sickness was laziness. He stopped fighting with himself, closed one eye in the struggle with injustice, the stain of oil left in the soul's lamp, in front of the temple where he served God, dragging his long garment and hovering like a shadow. He couldn't even call the name Lord once. He went back to his place and laid down. His body was slow moving. The solitary temple of God. The only thing he is looking after is the one dying oil lamp. Though he waits and waits, the priest's knee doesn't kneel. Ichabod. God's glory has departed. The sight of his appearance looked more haggard and dark than usual, for he was drowned in worry, 
A black shadow was cast around his eye. Thick wrinkles formed near his mouth. His doubly folded chin and bulging belly proved that he was a fully aged, slow-moving, elderly person. Because of his slow-moving body, he sat in an aged wooden chair. His appearance seemed awkward and unnatural. Even though the sun was at high noon, he couldn't distinguish his surrounding because of his darkened eyes. While he was outside, he blinked his eyes and listened to the sound of a woman's groaning. His daughter-in-law was in the middle of labor pains to give birth to her first child. From a few days ago, his heart was restless and uneasy, as if it was being pressed down. He didn't know why, but he couldn't stop the ominous foreboding that a great misfortune was coming. Now, the Ark of the Covenant of God was taken to battle, and Eli felt the utmost anxiety pressing upon him. Now, God's most holy place was empty. Eli the priest was 98 years old. He worked as a priest for 40 years, but for some reason, his spiritual sensitivity was becoming gradually dull. The position of a priest has merely become a duty and responsibility. The awe and thanksgiving have disappeared long ago. When he first wore the priestly ephod and entered God's most holy place, his innocent and sincere self was seized with excitement, fear, and great awe. Unfortunately, that self did not remain anywhere now. The world was changing. It became a world where the law was getting lax and the people were worshiping God according to their own comfort. They placed idols in the house and chose priests for their household. God's word was gradually disappearing from their lives and only abominably hypocritical ritual and custom maintained existence that they were God's people. The people acted according to their own individual right opinion. Eli was dejected as he saw how the world was becoming, but he didn't have faith to stand against injustice and rebellion. He knew more than anyone that such boldness and courage no longer existed within him. He was swept with deep discouragement. He thought, Now it's too late to turn back. Now the Ark of the Covenant that was in the most holy place is out in the battlefield, and Eli slowly began to realize. He thought the reason for all these situations heading for dissolution started with himself. The moment he reached this thought, Eli's inner side began to shake terribly. The color on Eli's face disappeared, and his dry lips twitched and trembled more severely. It was at that moment. From the entrance of the village, he heard the sound of women's wailing along with the sound of people's devastated shouting. At the news of Israel's defeat, the entire village suddenly began to become restless. As Eli heard the sound of urgent footsteps and harsh breathing of someone running towards him, he thought the sudden time had come. We lost to the Philistines. They captured the Ark of the Covenant. 
The news that the Ark of the Covenant of God was captured by Israel's defeat and that his two sons have died made Eli's heart shake rapidly to the point where it was hard to breathe. At this distressful news, Eli abruptly lifted his body. Then the slanted chair leaned over and his clumsy body lost balance and he fell. As he fell, his neck was broken and he died at the spot. From the outdoor, the sound of his daughter-in-law's sorrowful and sharp cry was heard. Ichabod! Ichabod! God's glory has departed. Eli. When I think about Eli, I think what a very pitiful person he was. He was closest to God's side, but he was farthest away from God. His spiritual ears have become darkened to the point where he couldn't hear God's voice that the young Samuel heard. Also, his spirituality became so dull that when he saw a woman praying desperately, he was mistaken that she was drunk. To his morally corrupt delinquent sons who despised God, he didn't have the spiritual authority to rebuke them and set them straight. He didn't have the passion or faith to teach God's word to his sons. To the people who loved God and lived according to their own right opinion, and to the unrighteous Israel, the competence of faith to deliver the message of God's warning and judgment didn't remain in him. From where did he go wrong to make him such an incompetent and helpless, pitiful priest? In Eli's story, one significant word appears. That is wait. When the man of God rebuked and warned Eli, he said, Why do you honor your sons more than God? Also, he said, Those who honor me I will honor, but those who despise me will be disdained. The original meaning of the word honor means to give weight to. It means he gave more weight to one side, more to the worldly values than the values of God's kingdom, more to a person's eye than God's eye, more thought and life's weight to his sons whom he could see with his eyes than to God whom he couldn't see. This meant Eli's entire life was tilted over and it lost balance. Eli was lazy before God. He was lazy in loving the word, and he was certainly lazy about praying. He was lazy about thinking, worrying, the desire to grow and change, and the interest of God's kingdom. He was settling in reality and was satisfied with his safe and comfortable life, and he wanted to stay at that place. God warned Eli twice and gave him a chance to turn around. When he heard God's message of judgment upon his house, he should have held on to God. If he desperately sought after God's forgiveness and compassion, the situation might have been different. However, this was his reaction to God's fearful warning that his house will be ruined. He is the Lord. Let him do what is good in his eyes. How can he react like this before God's fearful and frightening message of warning? This was not a reaction of obedience and faith, but an attitude of total unbelief. He did not really believe or realize the forewarning of judgment. Since his current life was so comfortable, 
It may have been bothersome to think about the future. He thought he was too far away from God to turn back. Eli wrongly placed the weight of life. Eventually, he lost the balance of weight and was faced with pitiful and unfortunate death. Eli's final appearance, which God showed clearly, shows us the image of him losing the balance of weight and how his life was tilted. Dear listeners, I believe that Eli exists in our Christianity and inside of us as well. If we are living by loading our weight of life, not on God, but on something else, and if we put aside the anticipation of change and growth, and if laziness is lurking in our lives to settle in reality, then we are also walking in Eli's path. I would like to name this Eli Syndrome. As Christians, if we are living by loading the weight of our heart on money more than God, worldly success more than God, our own honor and gain more than God, and our own desires more than God, then our slow-moving spirit will someday lose balance of weight and be tilted. The day when it will be difficult to arise again will come. Don't you think? That the age we live in is not greatly different from the time of Eli the priest? This age has been cast with spiritual darkness. God's people have become depraved and their spiritual conscience is becoming corrupt. The worldly people are living by making judgment on what's right and wrong according to their own individual right opinion. The spiritual leaders who have fallen into complacency and own satisfaction are getting diseased. I believe it's time for us to clearly cleanse our darkened spiritual eyes and ears with tears of repentance. I desire to restore the first love. I ask that He would breathe new breath into our soul which has gone cold. I desire for Him to come into our lives and drive out Eli's laziness so we could run the remaining race of faith. I desire to set straight the balance of life that has been tilted to the world and walk the right path. I desperately wish that we would live a life of preparation and react in faith before the word of stern warning of that day, before it's too late. One name. One name is high.
we are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.